0: Hi everybody, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the best old-time radio podcast. This week we're doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first uh, broadcast on the 27th of February back in 2017. And we hope you enjoy it. <laughs>
1: It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon.
2: I better get it out of the safe now.
1: Chester. I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's go.
0: Come on in. Good to see you guys. My goodness. Get out of the cold. Come on in. It's warm in here. Look, there's seats over there. Plenty of seats. Put your feet up. You can hang your coat up over there if you want. Chester has made some popcorn. That's what you're smelling as you walk in. He covered it with cheese. Cheese popcorn. Sounds good, doesn't it? We've got some root beer over there. Some root beer. Some hot, hot chocolate with whipped cream. No cherries. Chester forgot the cherries. But anyway, we're happy you're here. Come on in. This is Bob Rowe. This is Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio shows we actually remember from when we were kids. Why? Because we're baby boomers, but everybody's welcome. Some of these shows we remember more from television in their later incarnations, but many of them we may remember listening to on the radio. And tonight we've got a great lineup. We have an episode of Richard Diamond, star Dick Powell. We remember him. We also have an episode of the Jack Benny Show. We certainly remember Jack Benny, and it features Ronald and Benita Coleman, very funny. And of course, we're going to end up on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas, for an episode of Gunsmoke. Tonight we have a plot that has a good twist to it, and I don't think you'll see it coming. So that's my guess. So pull up a chair, make yourselves at home because we're going to get started in just a moment. Ready for a little private eye action? Huh? A little a little radio noir? Well, we're going to change things up a little bit this week. We normally play in this spot either an Adventures of Philip Marlowe, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. I play an awful lot of Dragnet, and occasionally a Suspense or an Escape, one of those. But um, we are trying to get a little more diversity in the show. The thing is, I like to play shows that are good, that are entertaining. And uh, those ones I mentioned are some of the most entertaining shows that were ever produced for radio. But tonight we're going to do an episode of Richard Diamond with Dick Powell. And Richard Diamond was a good character. It was written by Blake Edwards, who went on to just become uh, almost an icon in motion pictures. So it's, it's a good story. I find this is a really good story tonight. It's got a great cast. It features uh, Dick Powell as Richard Diamond. There's Virginia Gregg, Ed Begley, Wilms Herbert, Georgia Ellis, Tony Barrett, Joan Banks, and Norman Field. And it, it really is a compelling story. I really get swept away with this story. The production quality is excellent. The sound on this recording is, is superb. My problem with Richard Diamond is is the writing. Not the story, but but, but the, the dialogue. And I just feel like they tried to make him too cute. When you listen to both Johnny Dollar and particularly to Philip Marlowe, their snappy dialogue is cool. <laughs> it really works, you know. It, it's sort of like they can't be bought. But with Richard Diamond, it's, it's like a forced cuteness. I, I don't know how to put it. That's my opinion, but maybe you have a different opinion. But I think you will enjoy this story very much. And if you're a big Richard Diamond fan, man, this one is for you from October the 10th, 1949. This is Richard Diamond, private detective, and the Gibson murder case.
3: Described is Dick Powell
2: as Richard Diamond, private detective.
4: Hello there, this is Diamond. Hey, I got a beef. I went shopping for my girl Helen Asher the other day. You know, stuff for dinner. This town's gotten hotter than the blast furnace in Death Valley, so you gotta pick out things that make for a cool meal. Like salads, cold cuts, beer... Real picnic style. Well, I figured I could whip up a fancy tossed salad or something. Until I got around to the tomato counter. Have you glommed onto the price of tomatoes lately? Now, what's with that? So the cost of living is inflated. So a T-bone makes like it just arrived direct from the Sultan's classiest cow. Okay, a T-bone, I can understand. But what's with a tomato? When it costs so much, it should be hanging from a charm bracelet instead of lying in a salad bowl. Who needs it? So I bowed from the waist and figured you could still do a lot of things with a plain head of lettuce. Oh, uh, I got another beef, too. Why can't people start their killings in December when it's cool? Now, about a week ago, I got mixed up in a case, and before it was over, I took so many salt tablets, I am now the best seasoned private detective in New York. It started last Tuesday morning about 11 o'clock in an apartment on the Upper East Side. Ginny?
5: Yeah, genius.
6: No cracks. No cracks.
5: We're both waiting for old Gibson to turn us into the cops and you say no cracks. This whole rotten mess is your fault.
7: Well, how did I know the old goat wouldn't fall for it?
5: Well, he didn't.
7: So we better start packing. What for?
5: Because I don't want to play hostess to a lot of little men in blue. I'm allergic to handcuffs.
7: Relax, will you? They won't find us.
5: They can trace me from the other apartment.
7: How? Gibson don't know your real name. Do you leave anything in the other place, that will lead him here.
5: No. Cleaned out everything except the clothes. I didn't have time to move
7: them. <laughs> Notice you got away with the mink.
5: What do you want me to do? Leave it behind?
7: No, no. We can hock it.
5: Hock it? Yeah.
7: You want to blow town? Takes cash. Cash I ain't got.
5: You're telling me.
7: Look, baby, if Gibson does go to the police, I'll have to hock the court so we can blow this choice, eh? <sighs> All
5: right. You go get rid of it, and I'll start throwing some things in the suitcase.
7: Huh. Who's that?
5: How would I know? Maybe it's a landlady.
7: Oh, I forgot. They're painting this floor today.
5: Yeah, I saw the painters in 206. They'll probably start in this room in a couple of hours.
7: Okay, okay. Duck that coat. I don't want the landlady to spot it. Yeah.
8: Yeah, what? Gibson? So you really are married, huh?
5: Who is it, Hawk? Hello,
8: Virginia. Mr. Gibson. Yes, I waited around in front of the other apartment and followed you here. I wanted to be sure to send the police to the right place. Look, Mr. Gibson, look... You look, whatever your real name is. I don't like being blackmailed or threatened. But, please... No, Virginia, I... my mind's made up. In a way, I'm sorry for you, but you didn't think about me. I'm past 60, and I'm tired of being made a fool. Look, why don't you give her a break, Mr. Gibbs? Now, I'm not asking for That's me. That's very just... noble of you. You should have thought about that a few hours ago when you accused me of making love to your wife. You're not really married. Why, there you're... is no need of displaying your indignation. There'll be plenty of time for that when the police arrive. Harv? Yeah. Come in. Hey. How I must... dare you? Take your hands
7: off me. Look, you ain't calling nobody. You won't listen to me. You take your hands off me. What are you going to do, Harv? I'm going to change this old goat's
8: mind about calling the cops. You can't threaten me. No. Oh, so you struck me guess? I'll take it easy. He's an old man. Your concern is misplaced, my dear. I can take care of myself. What? Why, you... Give me that tan. I'll be glad to give, give it to you. across
7: your shoulders. Give me that. Todd, be careful. Hit me with a chain, will you? No, young... Boy. I'll set you up for good. Harvey.
9: Harvey. <laughs> you
10: idiot. Huh? You big, stupid idiot. Look what you've done.
7: All right, so What? No better next time. Throw some water on him. Well, do you hear me? Throw some water on him. What's wrong? Uh-huh. Come on, come on, Gibson. Come on, come on. Holy cow. You see? Think... Yeah, yeah.
9: Uh-huh.
7: Oh, shut, uh-huh. up. shut up. Shut
5: up, <laughs> to get him out of here. Why'd you have the name of a cane? Now you are in trouble.
7: I'm in trouble. We're in trouble, baby. We, we.
5: Stop that crying
7: all over the place. Help me get him out of
5: here. Oh, we're going to do it. It's broad daylight. Yeah.
7: I can't get him out of the building like this. We'll have to wait all night. We can't leave him in here. Why not? The painters. What do you mean? We'll... They'll be here in a little while. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now what, genius? Shut up. Shut up, will you?
11: i got to think. <laughs>
4: Diamond Detective Agency, murders financed while you wait?
12: Oh, you idiot.
4: Oh, is this Toodles Asher, the belle of Park Avenue? Ah, this
5: is Helen Asher, the girl that goes steady with the Diamond
13: Detective Agency.
4: Ah, sounds like a fine organization. Are they reliable?
13: Very seldom. Oh. I'll tell you better as soon as I find out what I'm going to do tonight.
4: You're going to give your butler the evening off, and the Diamond Detective Agency is going to march through your front door, single file, and show you a shortcut to spend the bottle.
13: (laughs) What
12: time does all this begin?
4: How long will it take you to pucker?
12: About two seconds.
4: Well, I won't get there until eight. Don't hold it, or you'll end up looking like a Ubangi.
13: You're
4: terrible. Yeah, but I'm pretty.
13: So is a baboon.
4: Oh, what you said.
13: You won't be late, will you,
4: Rick? I don't know. After that last crack, I think I'd better start going steady with King Kong. Rick. No, I'm mad.
9: Ricky, I love you.
4: Only because I can hang by my tail and my fangs have that toothpaste smile.
5: I think you're the most wonderful man in the world.
4: Well? I think
5: you're the handsomest, the strongest, the smartest.
4: Well, all right. Now tell me something I don't already know. Rick. Bye, baby. See you at eight.
10: Bye.
4: A, I'm adorable. B, I'm so beautiful. C, I... Now, look, honey, I can't make it till 8 o'clock. I got a fan dancer who's a client. She wants to go out and trap an ostrich this afternoon.
10: Is this the Diamond Detective Agency? Huh? Oh, yeah. Is this Mr. Diamond?
4: Yeah, what's the matter? You sound like you're standing on a body.
10: Oh, Mr. Diamond, please, you've got to help me. I, I just don't know what to do. Now,
4: take it easy. Who is this? What's wrong?
10: I thought it moved. What moved? The man sitting in my chair.
4: Well, that happens now and then. Why shouldn't he?
10: Oh, well, because he's dead. What? Yes. I came home this afternoon from girls' camp, and when I unlocked my door and went in, I found this uh, corpse sitting on my Hepplewhite. On your what? Hepplewhite. I don't know how he could have gotten there. Hepplewhite? No, the dead man.
4: What about Hepplewhite? Who? The guy this corpse was sitting on.
10: Oh, no, 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 no. That's a chair. Hepplewhite's an old antique chair. Oh. Uh, Oh, now I'm so confused.
4: Well, move over, honey. Now, take it easy and give me one thing at a time. Who's the dead guy? Well,
10: I don't know. I never saw him before in my life.
4: Okay. Now, why haven't you called the police?
10: Well, I thought about that, but I'm a school teacher, Mr. Diamond, and I was afraid of the scandal. I read a lot of detective stories, and the first thing that came to my mind was calling a a private eye.
4: Private eye. Mm-hmm.
10: You had the biggest ad in the phone book, so Naturally.
4: Naturally. Well, give me your name and address, and I'll be right over.
10: Oh, um, Esther Blodgett, uh, 419 East 79th Street, uh, apartment 108. Okay,
4: Esther. Now, don't let anyone in and don't touch anything.
10: Oh, oh, I know that, silly. After the initial shock wore off, I found myself in complete control. (gasps) What's the matter? I'm so nervous. I just lit a cigarette. It tasted so good, I offered one to the dead man.
4: Well, if he takes it, remember how you did it. I'll be right over. Hmm, Heppelwhite. Oh, is Walt going to have fun with this? Homicide, Sergeant Otis. Hello, Otis. Let me talk to the lieutenant. Diamond? No, this is Black Beauty. I just did a mile in 112, and I want to report that I'd been doped. Very funny. I thought so. I didn't win the race, but I was the happiest horse on the track. Now, put the lieutenant on the phone. Uh.
3: Lieutenant
4: Levinson. Diamond, Walt. I don't want any. You take your killings to another precinct. Oh, now, don't be a sore head. Giving you business is just my way of showing my friendship. Can't we just be buddies at a distance? I'm getting tired of chasing corpses. Well, grit your teeth and get over to 419 East 79th Street, apartment 108. Homicide? Yeah. A dame named Esther Blodgett reported it. she lives there. Who's dead? Well, I don't know. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. A guy named Heppelwhite. Heppelwhite? Uh, you ask Esther about it. She'll put you straight. You coming over? Yeah. Bye. As I went out of my office, I thought about Esther Blodgett and wondered how mad she would be when the police turned up. I had to call them whether she wanted a scandal or not because homicide comes first in my book. I'm an ex-cop and I still follow the rules. It's not a conscience. I just like staying in business. So when someone turns up with a killing, I always let Lieutenant Walt Levinson know about it. I grabbed a cab, and 20 minutes later, I was standing in Esther's apartment along with Walt, the dead man, and Happelwhite. Oh, you're a swell fellow, you are. What's the matter, Walt? I've been going through that Happelwhite routine for the last 10 minutes. I just found out it was a chair, that one right over there, the one that stiffs in.
10: Mr. Diamond, why did you call the police?
4: I thought you'd ask that. Because that man's been murdered, Miss Blodgett. That's what good citizens do when they find a dead man in the apartment. But,
10: but, but the scandal, I'm a schoolteacher. What will my students' mommies and daddies think?
4: Honey, just confuse them with that hebbled routine. What did you find out, Walt? Not much. The coroner will be here in a few minutes. Looks like someone gave him a pretty good beating. What's that all over his clothes?
10: Uh, Isn't that blood, Mr.
4: Diamond? Yeah, he's been bleeding all right. I mean, that brown stuff, Walt. Looks like lint or something. I noticed that, too. I don't know what it is. We'll have the lab analyze it. Tell me, Esther, you said when you came in, you unlocked the door.
10: Yes, that's right.
4: Are you sure it was locked?
10: Why, yes, it has a catch lock. Besides, you have to turn the key and then use the other hand to turn the knob.
4: Did did you touch anything? Open any windows?
10: I touched nothing.
4: Hmm. Well, that's a good one, Walt. Yeah, a corpse sitting in a room with the door and all the windows locked. Do you always lock the windows when you go out, Miss Blodgett?
10: Well, I've been away for several weeks at a girl's camp.
4: Aren't you a little old for that sort of thing?
10: Oh, I've been counseling one of the teachers who goes along to take care of the young girls.
4: Hmm. What do you think, Rick? Well, he wasn't killed in this apartment. No, no signs of a struggle. There's only blood around the chair and on the body. He must have been carried in. There would be blood trails on the floor. Not if he was carried in something. You say you never saw this man before, Esther?
10: Never in my life.
4: Hmm. Any identification in his wallet? Yeah, name's Gibson. Leland Gibson. No money taken either, so that eliminates the robbery angle. Any address? Yeah, he's got an old driver's license. 12 East 64th Street. Pretty classy district. Judging by his clothes, he was well fixed. Tailored? Good store? And as soon as the coroner arrives, I'm going to check this apartment building. Maybe somebody heard something or saw something. Uh, well, uh, let me check the 64th Street address for you. This is a police job. Where do you want to check it? Oh, because poor Miss Blasey looks so unhappy. I
10: am, Mr. Diamond. I am very unhappy.
4: She was? So She's unhappy. If you want to check the place on your own, go ahead, but I'm sending some men over anywhere.
10: Mr. Diamond, I like you.
4: Well, thank you, Esther.
10: No. I I want to hire you to catch the killer and and free me from this awful policeman.
4: Awful policeman? Do you know how I got this way, Miss Blodgett? Oh, I'm sure it wasn't easy. Good for you, Esther. I got this way because of this this private detective. Just call me Blue-Eye. Ever since he stopped working with me and left the force, I've gotten mixed up in more screwy cases than an alcoholic in a whiskey truck. There isn't one week that he doesn't turn up with one or two killings.
10: My, he gets excited, doesn't he, Mr. Diamond? And
4: in his spare time, he intimidates my sergeant. Just call me Rick, dear. I've taken enough bicarbonate in the last year to stop Vesuvius erupting. And if he doesn't give me a little peace and quiet, I'm going to end up solving a killing of my own.
10: Rick, my, that's a nice
4: name. How did you ever get to be a schoolteacher? You don't look the type. Are you listening to me? Oh,
10: what makes me so different? I've
4: seen signs on highways that say it better than I can. What
10: are you two babbling uh, about? You mean the ones that say, uh, "Danger! Stop! Look! And listen."
4: Well, that fits. But I was thinking about curves and soft shoulders. Oh no! Now you listen to me, Diamond. This is serious business. A man's been killed in soft shoulder. Uh, I mean, Miss Blodgett's apartment. If you want to take her on as a client, go ahead. But any questions from here on in will have to be gotten down at police headquarters.
10: You are taking me in, Captain.
4: Lieutenant. Yes, you'll have to come down for questioning. Rick. You go along with the big bad policeman, dear. I'll have you out in no time.
10: Well, all right, if, if you say so. But this has never happened to me before. Oh,
4: now, that's unfair. <laughs> oh, stop blubbering. Yes, oh. what is it? Oh, you get out of
9: here.
4: Oh, Otis, where the devil is Otis? I left Walt jumping up and down in front of Esther and the corpse and headed for 12 East 64th Street. It was an old brownstone in one of the wealthier districts. And when I rang the doorbell, I got another surprise. Yes? Yes. Don't tell me you're a schoolteacher.
12: I beg your pardon.
4: You Forget it. It's, uh, it's the landmarks that threw me.
12: What do you want?
4: But do you know a Mr. Leland Gibson?
12: Yes, he's my father. Now, just who are you?
4: Name's Diamond. I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you, Miss Gibson.
12: It's father. Something's happened to father. May I come in? Oh, I'm terribly sorry, yes. Now, please, what is it? What's happened to dad?
4: Well, uh, he's dead.
12: Oh, no. No.
4: Look, I know this is tough, but you've got to help me. The police will be here any minute. Police. Yes, your father was murdered.
12: Oh, I knew something like this would happen. You did? Well, tell me about it. Well, I I don't mean that I expected Dad to be...
4: (laughs) Okay, now, just take your time. Cry it out. Uh,
12: I'm sorry. Have you a handkerchief? Sure, here. Thank you.
4: Now, think you can talk about it?
12: Dad... Left the house about three weeks ago and moved into a hotel.
4: Did you have a fight or something? Oh, no, no. Everything was
12: fine, but...
4: No, no. Hang on.
12: Things couldn't have been better, and he was in wonderful spirits when he left.
4: No arguments? No hard feelings? He didn't leave mad? Oh,
12: no, no. Nothing like that.
4: Then, uh, have you got any idea why he suddenly packed and moved into a hotel?
12: Well, I'm not sure, but I think it was a woman. A woman? Yes. He... he told me one day that he... Met someone he liked very much. The day after that, he moved to the hotel, but I never saw her, and he never said anything more about her.
4: Weren't you a little worried?
12: Naturally. Father isn't a young man, and he...
4: I mean, wasn't. Uh, Just one more question. What hotel did he move to?
12: It... It was the Adams on Madison Avenue. He used to go there three nights a week for dinner and a game of bridge before he decided to move in.
4: Well, thank you. Are you all alone? Yes. Got any friends you can call?
12: A few, I guess.
4: Well, call them. It's better not to be alone. And ball your head off. It'll do you some good.
12: I'll, I'll send you your handkerchief, Mr.
4: A diamond. the Richard diamond. It's in the book. For some reason, I've got a talent for leaving people emotionally disturbed. Walt hops around like a rabbit in a cabbage patch, and Otis always tears his hair out by the hands full. Miss Gibson was less active about it. She just tried to smile and shed enough grief to fill the tub. I grabbed another cab and headed for the Adams Hotel. Yes, sir. Do you wish to register? No, but I want to find out about someone who did three weeks ago. Oh. Yeah, oh. By Mr.
8: Leland Gibson. Why, yes, he's staying at the hotel. And from now on, that's past tense. Ah, uh, I uh, don't understand. He hasn't notified us that he's leaving. Well, that might be a
4: little difficult if you'll run down to the morgue. I think you'll find out you're stuck with an empty room.
8: The morgue?
4: Yeah. Mr. Gibson has taken over one of the slabs rent free. Oh, my goodness. What happened? He's kind of dead. When did you last see him? Early this morning. He left the hotel around 10. Know where he was going? Why, no. Do you remember him having any visitors in the last three weeks? A girl, I mean. No. Are you looking for a girl? Uh, Yeah. Mr. Gibson's daughter seems to think he was running around with a woman since he moved into the hotel. Oh. You say
8: that like you knew what I was talking about. It was common gossip around the hotel. What was? Well, Mr. Gibson has been coming to the hotel for many years. He used to eat dinner here three nights a week and then play bridge with some of the hotel regulars. Now, about a month ago... We took on a new waitress. Uh-huh. Now, it was very obvious that Mr. Gibson was quite taken by her. Uh, so much so that he moved into the hotel and ate at her table every night. Oh, what was her name? Virginia Pelgrim. Uh, quite good-looking. About five three, dark brunette, very well um... mm, I'd like to see her. That's impossible. She left the hotel about a week after Mr. Gibson arrived. Oh, swell. Wasn't Mr. Gibson unhappy? Oh, No. He was rather happy, in fact. I believe he wanted her to move so he could see her more often. Now, what
4: makes you say that?
8: Some of the things she said in the kitchen to the other girls. Do you know where she might have moved? No. But, uh, you might check with the flower shop. Mr. Gibson used to send flowers every day. Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
4: Well, I wasn't sure just where I was going, but a Virginia Pilgrim was my best lead, and maybe she could tie the Gibson murder up with a silk ribbon. I talked to the flower clerk, and he gave me the address that the flowers had been sent to every day. It was a nice apartment in the village, and the landlady stuck her nose out like she was trying to smell me instead of see who was calling. Yes? I hope that door doesn't slam shut sometime. You'll have a bloody nose for weeks. What do you want? Roll out an eye with that nose, and I'll show you my badge. Aren't you cops ever polite to anyone? Well, there's a face that goes with it. I'm looking for a girl, about five foot three, dark brunette. No
5: in the wrong place.
4: Her name's Pelgrim. Oh,
5: uh, she lives upstairs.
4: She does, huh? Is she in now?
5: No. Went out this morning, hasn't come back.
4: And she probably won't. She have many visitors? Only
5: a couple. Men.
4: That figures. Ever see an elderly man, gray hair, about 60? Sure, every day. Know his name? No. You said she had a couple of visitors. Who else?
5: Another man. Younger, kind of greasy. Only came around a few times. Old man was there this morning, had an
4: argument. Could you hear what they said? I don't, snoop. Anyone else? No. Who paid her rent? She did, cash. Mind if I take a look at her apartment? Got a search, warrant? No. Then you can't. Okay, thanks. You've been charming. I left the old bat and headed back to the schoolteacher's apartment. If I was right, I'd seen setups like this before. But there was still the problem of finding out how Gibson was killed and how he got into a locked room. When I pulled up, I saw the wagon, complete with corpse and coroner, pulling away for the morgue. And when I went in and knocked on the door, I was certain that they'd forgotten one of the bodies. Oh, it's you, Shamus. Why, Otis... They're leaving without you. Who is? The hearse. Shouldn't you be lying down or uh, something? Now you can stop that Rick, and get in here. Hello, Walt. What's new? Well, Rick. Well, Esther, has Otis been using his rubber hose on you?
10: Oh, no, no, but I was getting lonesome. I'm glad you got back so soon.
4: You are. Huh? As soon as you two stop rolling your eyes, maybe you can tell me what you found out, Mr. Diamond. Now, yeah. Walt, send Otis down to the station for a search warrant. Then tell him to get over to 9 West 12th Street and see what he can find in the Miss Virginia Pelgrim's apartment. Who's Virginia Pelgrim? The only person who was mixed up with the murdered man. There was another man who used to see her, but I can't find out who he was. All right. Oh, well, let's go get the warrant. Yeah, Lieutenant. Thanks, Diamond. A pleasure, Sergeant. What did you find out, Walt? There were 11 people in the building at the time of the killing. None of them ever saw the guy before. Here's a list of the names. Three people on this floor, five on the second, and three more on the third. Have you talked to the landlady? Certainly. She doesn't know any more about it than the rest. What about that funny brown lint on the dead man's clothes? We're checking on that right now. The lab said they'd call me. Did the landlady say she had a key to this apartment? Sure, sure, but she hasn't used it but once since Miss Blodgett was away at girls' camp. When did she use it? Three days ago, when she had let the painters in. And she says that the windows and door were definitely locked because after she aired the paint smell out, she locked them herself. Painter, huh?
10: Yes, and I've been looking. You know, I think they did a terrible job. Why, the kitchen yes, alone... Uh, yes, Rick? Uh,
4: later, dear. Uh,
10: yes, Rick?
4: Walter, did they paint the whole building? They finished the second floor today. Oh, I'll get it, Miss Blodgett. Probably the lab.
10: Rick, yeah? do you know who did it?
4: Yeah. I got a hunch. Oh, I see.
10: you're wonderful.
4: Yeah. Okay, thanks. Lab, Walt? Yeah. That lynch you spotted in the dead man's clothes is from the mat that they put into rugs. Mm-hmm. Walt, you were on all the floors. Did one of the apartments have a rug missing? They are all missing from the second floor. The tenants took them down to the basement when the painters moved in. Any off this floor or the third? No, just the second. Well, your killers are on the second floor, Walt. How do you figure? Well, let's look at what we've got. Dead body in a locked room. Blood on body and floor around body, but nowhere else in the room. Carried in, in a rug, bullseye.
10: Oh, this is so exciting.
4: Uh, Esther. Uh, sorry. Yeah, but uh, how does a dame called Pelgrim figure into it? There's no Pelgrim listed in this building. Well, there shouldn't be if I'm right. The dead man met Virginia Pelgrim while she was working as a waitress in his hotel. She gave him a pitch and he fell. He put her up in an apartment so he could see her more often. So what? I think she was working with another man. A man who was seen around her apartment by the landlady. Then how did the body get over here? The guy the dame was working with probably lives here. What about the motive? Well, my guess is that Gibson was being blackmailed, and he followed the girl here. He was probably going to yell cops, so they killed him. Okay, now what about the locked room? Explain that. Let the landlady of this building explain it, Walt. Go ask her one question. Who had this apartment before Miss Blodgett? Uh, uh, Esther... Oh, I'm sorry,
10: Esther. Well, I can tell you that. a um, a Mr. and Mrs. Austin, they moved to a smaller apartment and let me have this one. It's more rent and they couldn't afford it, I expect. Uh, This is a better apartment, though. It has very... Esther? uh, Hmm?
4: What apartment did they take?
10: Oh, uh, it's on the next floor. Apartment 209. Mm,
4: According to this list of people who were on the second floor at the time of the killing, the Austins are the only couple. What did Mrs. Austin look like, Walt? Oh, about... Five foot three, dark brunette. Very, very well. Oh, say no more. Come on, Walt.
10: Uh, may I come?
4: Uh, no, Esther. You stay here. I'll be back later and discuss the better features of your nice little apartment. Yeah? I want to talk to you again, Mr. Austin. Why?
7: Told you everything I know. Where's your wife? In the back. We're coming in. Okay, you don't have to shove.
10: Who is it, Ha? Oh,
4: them cops again. Well, hello, Virginia. Do I know you? Where's your rug, Mr. Austin? What? It's down in the basement. Miss Pelgrim, how long have you been married to this man?
5: About three... Hey, how'd you know me?
4: Shut up. Know your name? You might as well tell the lieutenant everything. Why did you lie about knowing Mr. Gibson?
5: I didn't. I, I never saw him before in my life.
4: I didn't tell you the dead man's name was Gibson? How'd you know that? Don't answer that. Oh, shut up. You and your husband killed Mr. Gibson and carted him downstairs in a rug. Why'd we do that? Because the painters were on their way to paint your apartment. You had to get him out without being seen. You dumped him in Miss Blodgett's apartment because you knew she was out of town. And you used to live there, so you still had a key. Um... you hey, Shut up. We've got enough to hold both of you on. The rug will have bloodstains it. Oh. Get out of my way. Oh. way. Get out, Walt. Get out of way. Why, Walt, you're so rough. Yeah.
5: I, I didn't kill him. Harvey did.
10: I didn't kill him.
4: Okay, okay. You can tell me all about it down at the station. Hey, where are you going? So it's 6.30. I got a date. What about Miss Blodgett? She's going to get lonesome again. Yeah, she was born that way. I've got to see a girl who's going to hold a pretty interesting class of her own. Bye. Hi. Hi. Well, don't you look comfortable. Where's Francis?
5: I gave him the night off, like you suggested.
4: Ah, you're cute.
5: (laughs) I've got a cool dinner in the library.
4: School day, school day. You sound happy. Well, I was just thinking about a school teacher I knew once. Hmm, that looks mighty toothy.
5: Sing for your supper.
4: What?
5: Got a new tune on the piano.
4: Oh, honey, I'm hungry. You
5: sing first, and then you can eat.
4: Oh, Oh, all right.
10: What is it? Right
13: here. So in love. Oh, okay. Strange dear, but true
4: dear. When I'm close
13: to you, dear, the stars fill the sky.
8: So in love. I'll
4: get it. Even without you, my arms
9: fall
8: about.
4: asking for
5: you.
4: Oh, some girl. Wow, wow, wow.
5: I told her there was no one here but the piano tuner.
4: Oh, she leave her name? Uh-huh. Hepb
12: White.
4: Hepple White. Yes. Hmm. Who's she? Uh, come here, baby. No.
12: I want to know who she is. I said come no, here. No. I... Oh. Mm-hmm.
4: Ricky. Mhm. Who's Hepb White? Oh, just a chair, baby. The cute blonde hair.
2: You have just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Transcribed. Helen was played by Virginia Gregg. Lieutenant Levinson by Ed Begley. Also in our cast were Wilms Herbert, Georgia Ellis, Tony Barrett, Joan Banks, and Norman Field. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Richard Diamond is written by Blake Edwards. Now, this
8: is Eddie King reminding you that Dick Powell soon will be seen in the screen version of the bestseller novel, Mrs. Mike, and inviting you to be with us again at the same time next week when we will again bring you Dick
2: Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. <laughs>
0: From October the 10th, 1949, that was Richard Diamond starring Dick Powell. That was the Gibson murder case, as originally heard on NBC. And like I said, I really thought that story was good. And the sound quality on that show was just excellent. Just excellent. But I don't know. I just, I still prefer uh, Philip Marlowe and uh, some of the others but uh, we'll, we'll play other Richard Diamonds if we, we can find them that are that in that good a sound quality and, and that good a story uh, then we'll definitely play some more uh, send me an email let me know what you think or if you have any other requests for our Radio Noir segment uh, well, I'd be happy to entertain those as well Throughout history
11: There have been many songs written about the eternal triangle. This next one tells the story of a Mr. Grayson, a beautiful woman, and a condemned man named Tom Dooley. When the sun rises tomorrow, Tom Dooley must hang. Hang down your head, Tom. Dooley, hang down your head and cry Hang down your head, Tom Dooley Poor boy, you're bound to die I met her on the mountain There I took her life Met her on the mountain Stabbed her with my knife Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Poor boy, you're bound to die. This time tomorrow, reckon where I'll be. Hadn't have been for Grayson I'd have been in Tennessee. Oh well now boy, hang, hang down, down your head, your head and and hang down your head and, your head and cry, and cry. Oh, boy, oh, well hang down, down your head top. your head and cry. Oh boy you're, you're bound to die This time tomorrow Reckon where I'll be Down in some lonesome valley Hanging from a white old tree Hang down your hip, Tom duly. Hang down your head and cry Hang down your head, Tom duly. Poor boy you're bound to die oh well no, now boy hang down your head, Tom do leave hang down your head and cry hang down your head, tongue do leave poor boy you're bound to die poor boy you're bound to
0: die poor boy you're bound to die poor boy you're bound to die that was The Legend of Tom Dooley by the Kingston Trio. Big, big folk song hit back in the late 50s. Chester is telling me that we have a, uh, a phone caller. Hello, caller. This is Bob Bro on Boomer Boulevard. Who am I talking to, please?
14: Well, hello, Bob. Uh, pleasure talking to you. This is Mrs. Ethel Flange, and I'm calling you from Bowbells, North Dakota.
0: Bowbells, North Dakota. I, You got me on that one. I've been in North Dakota. Never been to Bowbells. Where Where would that be?
14: Well, we're just uh, just a few miles south of the uh, Canadian border, just north and west of Minot, maybe oh seventy miles or so.
0: Well, my goodness, and and what do uh, is there a Mister uh, Mister Flange?
14: Oh yes, my my dear husband Basil is still with us here, at, and we run a ranch up here at Bowbells. Our children are all gone, but uh, he and I are still still at it. Really, really working hard at it.
0: Oh, what kind of crops do you do you grow?
14: No, uh, Bob. No, 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 no. Uh, that's a farm. A ranch raises animals.
0: Oh, I, I didn't know the difference. I beg your pardon. What kind of animals do you raise?
14: Uh, chickens. We raise chickens. God, we've got a lot of chickens. Thousands and thousands of chickens. Chickens, uh, chickens. Every, every place you can see, there's chickens. I, lots of chickens, Bob. Lots and lots of chickens.
0: I imagine they take a lot of work.
14: Oh, you have no idea, Bob. Not only have to feed thousands of thousands of chickens, but their feathers get every place and their poop. Oh, my goodness gracious. Chicken little, chicken pellets every place. It just, ah... Uh... Well, anyway, that's that's not why I called. I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed that song you just played. I just love a good song about unrequited love, uh, love triangles, and a good old hanging. Oh, boy, that was a good one.
0: Well, uh, thank you, Ethel. That was a classic song. Do you know the background of that song?
14: Only that it's about... Uh, It's about unrequited love and love triangle and a good old-fashioned hanging. That's really all I know about it.
0: Well, tell you what, if you um, want to hang up and listen, I'll tell you a little bit about the background of that song.
14: Well, I'd love to hear it. Thank you, Bob, and keep playing those wonderful songs about unrequited love, love triangles, and a, a good hanging.
0: Well, okay, we'll see We'll see if we can come up with a couple other songs like that before the show's over. Thank you, Ethel. Nice to talk to you up there in Bowbells, North Dakota. Well, the way the story goes, it all took place right after the Civil War in 1866. A young woman by the name of Laura Foster was murdered. She was stabbed with a large knife. There was a Confederate soldier, a veteran, named Tom Dula, D-U-L-A who had been Foster's lover and he was the father of her unborn child. He was the one that was convicted of her murder and eventually hanged on May 1st in 1868. The murder and the trial received huge amounts of publicity throughout the nation. Now, Ann Melton was Laura's cousin, the dead girl's cousin, and she had been Dula's girlfriend from the time he was 12 years old until the time he left for the Civil War. Even though, while he was gone, she married an older man by the name of James Melton. When Dula returned from the war, he became the lover of both Anne and Laura. And then, later, still another of their cousins, by the name of Pauline Foster. Old Tom was quite around her. Pauline later made statements that led to the discovery of Laura's body. And she's the one that first accused Tom and Anne of the murder. Now who was Grayson? Colonel James Grayson was a Tennessee politician who had hired Dula to work on his farm. Well, when Dula came under suspicion for the murder of Laura, he ran away and was living under a false name. Grayson helped the North Carolinians capture Dula and he was also involved in returning him to North Carolina to stand trial. There was two separate trials, one for Ann and one for Tom. Ann was tried and acquitted According to the newspaper reports, it was based mostly on the fact that Tom gave testimony that said that she had nothing to do with Laura's murder. Tom, on the other hand, was found guilty in his trial, and he was sentenced to hang. On the day of his execution, he stood on the gallows and made a statement. He said that he had not harmed Laura in any way, but that he still deserved his punishment. He deserved to die. Now, there's been a lot of speculation. What did he mean by that? Many reporters felt that he was actually letting the world know that Anne had committed the murder, but Tom Dula had covered for her. Anne reportedly went insane just a few years after the homicide. Thomas C. Land, a North Carolina poet, wrote a popular song about Dula's tragedy and named it Tom Dula. So it was this song, along with the widespread publicity, that made Tom Dooley a legend in North Carolina history. And so thus you have the story of the legend of Tom Dooley. Something familiar.
14: Something
8: familiar. Something for everyone A comedy tonight
15: ah! Something appealing, Something appalling, Something for everyone A comedy tonight <laughs> Nothing with kings Nothing
13: with clowns Bring
11: on the lovers Liars and clowns ah! no Situation No complications Nothing
15: portentous or polite Ready tomorrow
0: Hi, oh, yeah, it's time for our Comedy Corner, and we've got another episode of the Jack Benny Show this week that features Ronald Coleman and his wife Benita Hume. And again, it's a good one. This one was originally heard on the 3rd of February in 1946 on NBC. Now, you might recall from previous Benny shows that there was a contest running about this time that Benny's publicist came up with, entitled, I Can't Stand Jack Benny Because. And it's in this episode tonight that the winner is announced. And so that is how this episode got its name. Also on this one, Isaac Stern is Jack's guest. And as a result, there's quite a bit of music in this one. I never thought that classical music came across very well on, on radio at least not before they came up with much more high-tech speakers and ways to record and whatnot. So, for that reason, this isn't my favorite episode, but the parts with with, uh, Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume and the part with Jack and Mary are hilarious. You're really going to get a kick out of it. So, here we go from February the 3rd, 1946, contest winners name announced on The Jack Benny Show. (laughs)
16: Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Larry Stevens, and yours truly, Don Wilson. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, tonight Jack Benny is taking Mary to a concert at the Philharmonic Auditorium given by one of the world's greatest violinists, Isaac Stern. As we look in on Jack, he's at home dressing for the occasion.
2: Rochester, I still think they're a little too short. They barely reach my ankles.
16: Maybe
17: I can let the cuffs out.
2: No, if you let the cuffs out, they'll be too long. A drag. Gosh, I wish they fit better.
17: What's the difference, boss? After you put your pants on, who sees your underwear? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You're certainly going to a lot of trouble getting dressed tonight.
2: Well, Rochester, all the important people in town will be at the concert. After all, Isaac Stern is one of the world's greatest violinists.
17: Oh, come now, boss. You'll play the violin as good as he does.
2: No, I don't, Rochester, no.
17: <laughs> oh, yes, you do.
2: I do not.
17: Well, I think so.
2: Rochester, you've never even heard Isaac Stern.
17: Well, take advantage of it, boss. Take advantage it.
2: <laughs> Oh, I see. You know, Rochester, maybe if I had followed my musical career, it might be me giving that violin concert tonight. Me, Yasha Benny. (laughs) I can just picture the scene. As I walk out on the stage, the spotlight falls on me. Me, Yasha Benny. Confidently, I lift my violin and tuck it under my chin. I raise my bow. 5,000 pairs of eyes are staring at me.
17: Say, Yossi, you better put your pants (laughs)
2: on. Oh, yes, yes, help me. You know, Rochester, it's a little unfair. I have to go through life being a clown, a buffoon, while inside, deep down inside, I have a yearning for the finer things.
17: You could have some of those things, boss, if you'd just loosen up a little.
2: (laughs) I suppose so, but then, again, you do have to think of the future. After all, Rochester, I haven't got much
17: money. I don't know. Every time I turn your mattress over, Wall Street drops three points.
2: (laughs) Rochester, let's drop the subject and just help me get ready for the concert. Hand me my dress shirt.
17: Here you are, boss. White tie or black?
2: The white tie my tails, too. I haven't worn this suit in a long time. How do my tails look?
17: Pretty good, boss, but you shouldn't have had the tails starched.
2: Starched? Well, I figured it would hold them in place.
17: I know, but when you bend over, you look like a sparrow.
2: <laughs> no, I never thought about that. Come in. Hello, Phil Hiya, Jackson Well, well Look at our little boss All dressed up My, my, my What new drive-in Is opening tonight? (laughs) Phil, I'm not going To a drive-in I'm going to the Philharmonic Isaac Stern is playing Yeah? Against who? Nobody He's a soloist He plays the violin You know, it wouldn't hurt you To go to a concert Once in a while Never saw a guy Take less of an interest In his profession What do you mean no interest? You know darn well That I'm a musician Phil, just because You have a picture of Petrillo Tattooed on your chest Doesn't mean you're a musician <laughs> You and that band of yours Now wait a minute, Jackson You've been riding my boys Long enough My orchestra is not as bad As you so oh, unprovocatively infer. inferred Unpro-what? Huh? No, you don't I ain't gonna try that one again (laughs) No, no, Phil, go ahead I'd like to see how it comes out the second time I mean, go ahead Okay, my orchestra is not as bad as you So unprovocatively infer Say, that's pretty good So where'd you pick up that word? Phil Phil, answer me Wait till I get this knot out of my tongue (laughs) I thought it would throw you Well, it's getting late I gotta leave now Meet Mary in front of the auditorium I'll get it
16: Hello? Hello, Jack. This is Don Wilson. Oh, hello, Don. What do you want? Well, I heard you were going to Isaac Stern's concert tonight, and I was just wondering if you could get a couple of tickets for me.
2: Well, I don't think so, Don. It's been sold out for weeks. Oh, gee, that's a shame. I'd love to go.
16: I'd even pay double the price. Well, I'm afraid it's... You would?
2: (laughs) Well... No, Mary's probably dressed already
16: <laughs> <you>?
2: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry, Don, there's nothing I can do for you Well,
16: thanks just the same, Jack Goodbye Well, I gotta run
2: along now Goodbye, Phil So long, Jack. And Rochester, you can have the rest of the night off Thanks, boss When will you be
17: back? Tonight, I only got 35 cents You can't lose a weekend on that
2: <laughs> I guess
17: not Goodbye <laughs>
2: I am right over here
18: Okay, Jack Just a minute I'm sorry, sailor But he showed up
2: (laughs) Mary, come here Who are you talking to?
18: Oh, some sailor His boat just anchored At Hollywood and Vine
2: (laughs) Well, here we are, Mary At the Philharmonic How do I look?
18: Mm, Certainly dressed swanky For the concert White tie, top hat And a bag of peanuts
2: well, I thought you might enjoy something after the show you know. <laughs> uh, let's go in
18: But, Jack, the main entrance is around the corner
2: I know, but i got to go backstage and see Isaac Stern first Come on I wonder where his dressing room is Maybe it's around here somewhere This, this must be it right here Come in uh, Mr. Stern? Yes, I'm Isaac Stern Mr. Stern, this is Miss Livingston. How do you do? How do you do? And I'm Jack Benny. Jack Benny? Yes. Uh, you see, when I heard you were giving a concert in Los Angeles, I sent you money for two tickets, knowing that you'd get me the best seats available. Oh, yes, yes, Mr. Benny. I have the tickets right here. Here you are. Thanks. Wait a minute. These tickets are $1.10. I distinctly remember sending you... I did my best, Mr. Benny, but the house was sold out, and they didn't have any more seats available at the price you requested. Oh, so I added 30 cents of my own money and uh,
9: <laughs>
2: Well, thank you very much, Mr. Stern. I hope I didn't impose on you too much. You see, you being a concert violinist, naturally I felt that we have something in common.
9: <laughs>
2: yes, sir. We have something in common?
18: Uh, yes, Jack's violin has four strings, too.
2: <laughs> Mary. <laughs> Mary, please.
18: Jack, give Mr. Stern the 30-cent, you old Let's go.
2: Oh, yes, yes. Just a minute. Here you are. 10, 20, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. There you are, Mrs. Stern Thank
18: you Okay, Jack Put on your shoe and let's go
9: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Goodbye, Mr. Stern And thanks for getting my tickets You're welcome Goodbye Come on, Mary Tickets, tickets, please Hold your own tickets Here you are Thank you Stairway to your left, please Come on, Mary Usher, where are these seats? Uh, stairway to your left, please. Come on, Mary. <laughs> oh, Usher.
3: Usher, where are these seats? Yeah, let me see. Uh, row A, seats three and five. You see that last aisle over there? Oh, yes, yes, good. Well, take the stairway right next to it. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. <laughs>
2: Gosh, what a climb.
18: Oh, Jack, I can't go on. Give me another penis. <laughs>
2: Here you are. A washer. Yeah. <laughs> are these... <laughs> Are these seats in this balcony? Yes, right over here.
18: Gee, this is awfully high, isn't it?
2: We used to think so, but now they can reach us by radar.
9: <laughs>
2: Don't be funny. Just show us to our seats. Just yes, follow me. Here you are. Your seats are right here. Thank you. Say, these seats are all right, Mary. I can relax and put my feet up on the railing.
17: And you better take
2: your hat off. The spotlight will burn a hole for it. <laughs> I'll watch it, I'll watch it. <laughs> Say, Mary, we may be in the top balcony, but at least we're in the front row. Can you see the stage all right?
18: No, but I got a wonderful view of Catalina.
2: <laughs> That's a painting on the wall. Here, have a peanut.
18: Gee, there's sure a lot of people here tonight.
2: Yeah, this place is certainly... Hey, Mary, look. Look way down there. Isn't that Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman? Where? Way down there below us, to the left of that cloud.
10: (laughs) Ronnie, weren't we lucky to get such good seats?
3: We certainly were, Benita.
10: Mr. Stern plays the Mendelssohn concerto.
3: Well, now, let's see. He's going to play a sonata by Cesar Franck. then, uh... Oh, yes, here it is, the Mendelssohn concerto. And he follows with La Campanella by Paganini.
10: Which one of those numbers do you like the best?
3: Oh, it doesn't make any difference to me. I just came here to get away from Chickory Chick-Chilla-Chilla. That I know he won't play.
18: Oh, Jack, that isn't Mr. and Mrs. Coleman. I'm sure it is. Oh, Ronnie! Ronnie! Benita! Yoo-hoo! Jack, Jack, everybody's looking up at us with their binoculars. Let them look. (laughs)
2: They're jealous
3: because we know the Coleman's.
2: Oh, Ronnie!
18: Ronnie, Yoo-hoo! Ronnie, isn't that Jack Benny up there trying to get our attention?
3: Yes, it's embarrassing, but don't look up.
18: After all, he is our next door neighbor.
3: Benita, that is a situation which the housing shortage prevents me from doing anything about. <laughs>
9: he's
10: going to so much trouble to attract your attention. He's dropping little bits of paper. Oh, he's dropping peanut shells. Uh,
3: if he spits, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> What's he doing way up there, anyway? Well,
18: perhaps his doctor recommended a higher altitude. <laughs>
3: Where he's sitting is cheaper than the Alps.
18: Uh, it's higher, too. Yeah,
3: so it is.
9: <laughs> well,
18: anyway, dear, he won't be throwing any more peanuts.
3: Oh, how do you know?
18: I just got hit on the head with a bag.
3: <laughs> Remarkable. He must be using a Norton bum sight.
2: Isn't that awful, Mary? I just can't seem to attract their attention. Oh, Ronnie! Ronnie, Benita, you! Jack, don't lean so far over the rail. Ronnie!
9: You!
3: Isn't it awful? He just won't give it up. I beg your pardon, sir, but I think there's somebody trying to get your attention. No. My attention? Yes, that man up
8: there hanging from the rail by his heels.
3: Oh, yes, yes. You know, Benita, I thought that the horn blows at midnight would keep him home for a couple of years. <laughs> well, then, I guess some people don't know when... Ronald,
10: what was that thing that just fell in your lap?
3: Oh, for heaven's sake. What is it? A
9: toupee.
10: <laughs> a toupee. Do you think it belongs?
3: I'm afraid so. Look at the laundry mark. <laughs> and, and look what it says right. Look what it says right below it. If lost, will finder, please read the lost and found columns in the Beverly Hills newspapers. The article in question will be referred to as a cocker spaniel with a cold nose and a part on the side. <laughs>
18: They're
2: starting to dim the lights Oh, darn it, I almost had their attention Well, oh, look, honey, they're starting to dim the lights
18: Don't get fresh, mister I happen to be here with an escort
2: Mary, it's me, it slipped off <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
18: well, put your hat on, you look awful And be quiet, the concert's about to begin
2: Yeah, here comes Isaac Stern, now Ready
3: for your coat? Uh, Boy, here's my check.
2: I know you don't, Bob. I was...
3: Ronnie! Jack, Jack, old boy. What a surprise seeing you here. Yes,
2: yes. Wasn't the concert
3: wonderful? It certainly was. And I loved the Mendelssohn Concerto.
2: Well, I did too. However, I felt that he had just a little too much pizzicato in the Andante.
0: (laughs) Uh,
2: Didn't you? Uh, No. Oh. (laughs) Well, it sounded that way by the time it got up to me Here you coach, gentlemen Thank, Thank you.
3: you Well, good night, Jack My best to marry Good
2: night, Ronnie Give my love to Benita
3: I will Oh, by, by, by the way, Jack Did you lose a cocker spaniel? Why, oh, uh, yes, yes Well, don't worry Here, Lassie has come home
9: <laughs>
3: Thank you Goodbye, Ronnie Oh, Benita, I think that's one of the finest concerts I ever heard. It
11: was
10: absolutely wonderful. Give me a cigarette, will you?
3: Of course, I have some right here in my overcoat. Oh, I had some when I... I say this isn't my coat. There must have been a mix-up at the cloakroom. Are you sure? Yes, I'm positive I had... Certainly, look at the label. Why, this is Jack Benny's coat.
10: Jack Benny's? Yes. Oh, well, tomorrow then we'll have to... Why, well, Ronnie, what are you looking at?
3: Huh? Oh, it's this address book I found in Benny's coat pocket.
10: address book? Yes.
3: You know, he's always boasting about his influential friends. Well, listen to this first name.
10: <laughs> Gladys Zibisco,
3: Gladstone 0338.
10: Gladys Zibisco. Mm.
3: Here's a note he's written alongside her name. It says, Do not kiss too hard, has pivot to. <laughs> And listen to this next name, Marcella Fink. And then he has in parenthesis, approach from the right, she's left-handed.
10: Oh, he has such interesting friends. Oh, what's that? Folded sheet of paper that just fell on the floor.
3: Well, oh, Benita, look, it's, it's one of his contest letters.
10: Oh, you mean the I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest?
3: Yes, and there's a little notation on it that says, this letter was written by Carol P. Craig, Sr., And won first prize.
10: First prize? Oh, Ronnie, I wondered what the winning letter was right. Read it, please.
3: All right. It says, I can't stand Jack Benny because he fills the air with boasts and brags and obsolete, obnoxious gags. The way he plays his violin is music's most obnoxious sin. His cowardice alone, indeed, is matched by his obnoxious greed. And all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious ways. Now, you know, Benita, that's very clever.
10: Yes, it has such a good
18: thought behind it. Yes.
3: And all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious way. You know, Benita, maybe the fellow that wrote this letter is right. The things that we find fault with in others... Are the same things that we tolerate in ourselves.
12: That's so true, Ronnie.
3: It certainly is.
18: (laughs) Say, Jack, wasn't Isaac Stern wonderful?
2: Absolutely terrific.
18: Jack, I'll make you a sporting proposition What is it? I'll break my leg if you'll break your
2: violin <laughs> I will not <laughs> After all, Mary, I... Say, wait a minute This isn't my coat I've got on somebody else's coat What? Look, look at the label, it's Ronald Coleman Funny, I must have a mistake at the cloakroom I wonder what he's got in his pocket <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake, Lori. Mary, look. Isn't this cute?
18: Well, what is it?
2: A yo-yo. That's <laughs> exactly. Good night, son. And there you go. From
0: 1946, February the 3rd. This was... The Jack Benny show that we were just listening to is originally heard on NBC, and the name of that episode was Contest Winner Name Announced. That was a good one. That was one of the many shows that featured Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume, and we'll do more in the weeks ahead. Uh, the, the part with Isaac Stern was very good, too. And there's no question, that man was a master, wasn't he, with violin? Some of those uh, things that he accomplished on that were amazing. Hope you enjoyed it. couple of uh, program notes there. The Philharmonic Auditorium, or Philharmonic Hall, was in downtown L.A. near Pershing Square in a large theater that was originally designed as one of the first movie palaces on the West Coast. The um, orchestra performed there from 22 until 1964 when it moved to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, one of three original auditoriums comprising the Los Angeles Music Center. The others were the Amundsen Theater and the Mark Taper Forum. Today, there's the fourth, a fourth. It's the Walt Disney Concert Hall, which opened in 2003. And that's where the Los Angeles Philharmonic plays today. Did you notice the reference to Chickeree Chick Chalala? Ronald Coleman mentioned, I think Mary mentioned it once. And I, I I, I couldn't remember what this was about, or I didn't know what this was about. So I had to look it up. This was a song by the Sammy K Orchestra, and it was sung by... Uh, Nancy Norman. Nancy is kind of an interesting uh, story. She auditioned for the Sammy K. Swingin' Sway Orchestra uh, during a Who Wants to Sing with the Band contest, and Sammy was so impressed he immediately signed her. But Nancy was just sixteen years old. She only stood four foot eleven, and she barely weighed a hundred pounds. And so every place the orchestra went, that she went, she had to be accompanied by her mother. She was Sammy's lead female singer from forty-two to forty-five. And with the orchestra, she performed all over the country and produced three top hits. One was Saturday Night is the Loneliest Night of the Week, There Will Never Be Another You, was another one, and Chickory Chick, which spent four and a half months on the charts. And one of those months was At the Top. Oh,
15: Chickory Chick, chilla, 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 in a banana, bollica, bollica, can't you see?
9: Chickory Chick
5: once there lived a chicken who would say chick 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 chick
10: chick," all day
5: soon that chick got sick and tired of just chick chick so one morning he started to say chicory chick-cha-la-cha-la, la chala, me, in a banana cabalica, walaka, can't you see? chicory chick is me. chicory chick-cha-la-cha-la, chala la me, in a banana cabalica, walaka, can't you see? chicory chick is me. Every time you're sick and tired of just the same old thing, saying just the same old words all day. Just like the chicken who found something new to sing Open up your mouth and start to say Oh chicory chick, cha la check a me in a banana, caballock, walaka, can't you see? Chicory chick is
9: me. <laughs>
16: Sick and tired of just the same old thing Saying just the same old words all day Be just like the chicken who found something new to sing Open up your mouth and start to sing Oh, Chickory Chick,
11: Chalap Chalap, Chackalow Me in a bananica, ballica, ballica, can't you see? Chickory Chick is me, Chickory Chick is me Chickory
0: Chick is me, ballica, ballica, can't you see? Well, there you go hey, That's a cute song, there's no, no question But I could understand if you had to listen to that thing for four and a half months Every time you turn on the radio Why uh, Mr. Coleman would uh, welcome a little respite there uh, Listening to Isaac Stern Brush your teeth with Colgate's Colgate Dental Cream
6: It cleans your breath What a toothpaste What it clean your teeth Colgate toothpaste cleans your breath,
0: what a toothpaste, clean clean your teeth. All right, Chester's holding up a record. Is that one of Mrs. Flanges? All right, <laughs> this one, again, goes out to Mrs. Ethel Flange up there in Bobells, North Dakota, who has requested songs tonight that have to do with unrequited love, a love triangle, and an old-fashioned hanging.
15: Makes me sad and blue Was on a rainy night like this That Flo said we were through I told her how I loved her and I begged her not to go But another man had changed her mind So I said goodbye Alone within myself tonight, my heart is filled with fear. The only sound within the room is the falling of each tear. I think about the thing I've done, I know it wasn't wrong. And took my flow And headed into town I knew I had to find this man And try to gun him down As I walked by a dim cafe And I looked through the door I saw my flow with the hernus I couldn't stand no more I took my pistol From my hip And with a trembling hand I took the life Of a pretty flow And that good for nothing man That good for nothing man I think about the thing I've done, I know it wasn't right. They're very flowed tomorrow, but they're hanging me tonight. They're hanging me tonight.
0: That was Marty Robbins. And the name of that one was They're Hanging Me Tonight. And that certainly met the uh, criteria set down by our listener in North Dakota.
9: Now oh
0: that music means, everybody. That music means it's time to be transported back to Dodge City, Kansas, circa 1874, walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon, upholding the law. Along the way, we're going to meet up with Chester and Doc and Kitty and the whole gang on yet another episode of Gunsmoke. This one was originally broadcast on the 2nd of January in 1954, and it's entitled Stage Holdup. Now, this is a good, well-written episode with twists and turns that I bet you won't see coming. That's just my guess. Another interesting thing, just a side note, at the beginning of this episode, and I'm not giving away a, a spoiler, Matt is on a stagecoach right in the opening scene, and the stagecoach is robbed. Well, there's two thieves, and one of them is talking to Matt while the other one is doing something with the other passengers. And you, you're supposed to be able to hear the other passenger, and it's obviously Howard McNear, you know, who plays Doc. But of course, Doc's not on the stage. He was just filling in his doing some voice work so they didn't have to bring another actor. But you just can't disguise his voice. It is so distinctive. See if you notice it. All right, here we go. Back to 1954 and stage holdup on Gunsmoke.
16: Around Dodge City and in the Territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke.
6: The trip from Hayes City to Dodge was long enough horseback, but by stagecoach, it seemed endless. There were only two passengers besides me, and after the first hour on the road, we stopped talking. Just sat there in silence, waiting for the ride to be over. I'd been up late the last few nights, so I braced myself into one corner of the coach and fell asleep. I vaguely remember the stage pulling to a stop and somebody shouting. But I came fully awake when the door was jerked open and a man behind a bandana stuck a shotgun in my face. Get out of the coach. Hands in front of you. It'll be a pleasure to blast you open. All right. Take his gun, Charlie.
9: Yeah.
16: Now, stand over there with the driver. You two next. Now, get on out and
14: don't
6: try nothing. Of course. How come you didn't start shooting when they stopped me, Marshal? Well, I was sound asleep, Hank. Well, I'm sure glad of that. If we put up a fight, that fellow with a shotgun would have blowed me clean off the seat. Yeah, yeah. How many of them are there? Just these two? That's all I've seen. Yeah, there could be somebody with a rifle hiding in that clump of elder over there. Could be...
8: <laughs> ah, that'll learn him, Charlie. Hey, look. He killed him, Marshal. Yeah,
6: the man was a fool to try that. Go get the box down, Charlie. Right. Take this one to help you. Oh,
14: come
6: on, you. I'll keep an eye on these two here. Oh, you're a marshal, huh? I am. Well, that greenhorn got himself killed. He shouldn't have tried to shoot Charlie. No, he shouldn't. Not with a little derringer. Charlie got hit. Right in the arm. Yeah, I saw it. I just don't want nobody chasing us for murder. Under the circumstances, it was murder. It was, huh? Well, then the only thing to do is shoot the whole bunch of you and have done with it. No, you can't do that. Mister, I got a wife and two kids in Dodge. What I hear, Dodge ain't a very good place to raise a family anyway. Look, you're in enough trouble already. Besides, you didn't kill that man, your partner did. Yeah, that's right. It's Charlie they'll be after. How much money is there in that box, driver? I don't know. They never tell me. We'll we'll find out. He's got it open now. Load it in them saddlebags, Charlie. I got an idea. You're new at this game. Look, if a man was holding a shotgun on me and I was unarmed, I wouldn't have no ideas about nothing, Marshal. You always carry a shotgun, mister? Why? Why? We might meet sometime when you don't have one. You're going to make me shoot you yet? Hey, look, your partner's ready to go. Okay. Uh, Don't you make a move till we're out of sight. We'll ride back and kill every one of you. You understand? I guess there's nothing we can do but stand here. That's all, Hank. For right now, anyway.
1: (laughs) Oh,
6: <laughs> What'd you do, Kitty? Burn your mouth Ow. again?
5: Oh, darn it, yes. What do you mean again?
6: Well, it seems like you always do if the coffee's hot enough.
5: Thanks for the sympathy.
6: <laughs> <laughs> it's as much as you gave me about the stage hold-up the other day.
5: All I said was I'm glad you were asleep. You're a lot safer that way.
6: Well, being safe isn't exactly my main goal, Kitty. Yeah,
5: I know. How much money was there, Matt?
6: Two thousand dollars. You'd think they'd have paid a man to ride shotgun.
5: Have you any idea who did it?
6: No, they were both masked. I hear Wells Fargo put up a reward for him. Yeah, there's $1,000 for the one who killed the passenger, dead or alive. They must want him real bad. That's not good for business. People getting murdered.
5: What about the other one?
6: A $300 for his capture. And uh, if you recover the stolen money, Kitty, well, they'll give you half of it.
5: If I found that money, they'd give me all of it.
6: (laughs) You'll end up in jail yet.
5: Well, the Texas Trail isn't far from being a jail. For me, anyway. I gotta get back there pretty soon, Matt. Sure. Hey,
16: you. Waiter. Come here and take this money or I'll throw it at you.
5: Another gentleman in town. Um...
6: I, I don't want to turn around. What does he look like? Well, I,
5: I think it's the one with the black beard You there. heard me,
16: waiter. Get over here before I bust your neck. Yeah,
5: that's a one, all right. Is there anybody with him? No, he's alone. And he's leaving now.
6: Oh, good. No, no, don't huh? stare at him. I don't want him to see me.
5: Well, he's not even looking this way. He's going out the door, man.
1: Uh.
6: All right, uh. come on. I want to follow him.
15: Okay. I've seen him. seen
6: is that him ahead of us, sir? The
5: big man, yeah. Who is he, Matt?
6: I'm not sure. But he sounds an awful lot like somebody I want. You gonna arrest him? No, not till I'm sure. Maybe not even then.
5: Look, he's going up to docks.
6: Yeah. So he is. Uh, Kitty, I'll leave you here. Okay. Thanks for the supper, Matt. Sure, anytime. Tomorrow? Well, I might be real busy tomorrow.
5: I figured that.
6: So long, Matt. Goodbye, Kitty. Why,
11: man, that's a serious thing.
1: It sounds like his arm is infected to me. Uh, How'd he do it? Well, he,
6: he just tore it on
1: some wire. Well, why didn't you bring him into town? It might be gangrene. Is that bad? Bad. <laughs> well, he could lose the arm or even die. Where is he anyway?
6: Out on the prairie in the camp. Ain't there uh, some medicine or something I could take back with me, Doc? Oh, oh, oh! Hello, Matt. Good evening, Doc. Yeah. Uh, oh, go go right ahead. I I just came up for a smoke. Oh, sure. Sit down, Sit down, there, man. Yeah, oh, thanks.
1: Now look, Mister. There isn't a medicine in the world. Never mind. But Doc. I'm telling you. Forget it.
6: I'll talk to you tomorrow. Everything's okay. Yes. You better not wait too long. I'm warning you.
16: I won't. We'll take care of everything tomorrow. Hold so on.
6: Ah, that man's crazy. That's what. No, he's not crazy, Doc.
14: No, you should have heard him. I did. What do you mean you did?
6: I was outside the door, Doc. Well, he's going under the olive for I guess he isn't too worried.
1: What's this all about, Matt?
6: Uh, Doc, I'll explain it to you later. Right now I gotta find Chester.
1: Oh, Chester, yes, he's down in the office. I just left
6: him. Oh, good. I sure hope he's had a lot of sleep lately.
1: What's that?
6: He's gonna be pretty busy tonight. I'll see you later, Doc. <laughs>
1: You follow him all night, Chester? Oh, Mr. Dillon, I'm about ready to drop. Everything's getting hazy. Where is he, in the restaurant there? Yes, sir, that's where he went. He gambled the entire night. I swear out on the high days a week, I can't hardly keep my eyes open.
6: Oh, Rub a rouser or tobacco juice on him, Chester. That'll help.
1: Oh, my goodness. He just come out the door.
6: Yeah, he's seen us. Stand steady. Yes, sir. Marshal, I, uh, I got a complaint. Now, is that so? Sure is. I had an idea this man's tracking me all night had something to do with you. Oh, how'd you know I was following you? Mister, you might as well have been wearing snowshoes with cowbells tied on them.
1: Now, that's not true. That's a doggone... Never mind, Chester.
6: Never mind. What is your complaint, mister? Well, you... Can't a decent citizen ride into the Dodge and do a little gambling without being haunted by your man here? Well, that depends on how decent the citizen really is. What name do you go by, anyway? My own. Jermo. Jermo. <laughs> is that all there is to it? That's all. Yeah. Well, Guillermo, I just didn't want you to leave town without my knowing about it. Why not? I ain't done nothing. Well, Doc told me about your partner. The one who tore his arm on some wire. What about him? Well, I'm curious to see if you're going to take care of him, that's all. Well, of course I am. He'll die if you don't hurry. Well, I... I'm going after him. When? Well, it's no business of yours, when. And anybody following me is likely to run into trouble. From a shotgun, Germo? I don't use a shotgun, Marshal. Your partner's dying, Germo. You're wasting time. And he's dying. He's my partner, not yours. I'll take care of him. Sure, sure, Germo. But you better hurry. Chester had been up all night, so... I sent him to bed, and I hired a Kiowa Indian I knew to keep an eye on Jermo. But even though his partner was dying of gangrene from the bullet wound he'd received at the stage holdup, up didn't leave Dodge that day, nor the next. He knew I'd track him to their hideout and to the stolen money if he did. And he wasn't the kind of a man who'd risk his own neck just to save his partner's life. And since I had no real evidence yet, there was no use arresting him. So, all I could do was wait.
1: That Indian is a wonder to behold, Mr. Dillon. He hasn't slept a wink in two whole days, and he don't even look tired.
6: No, but Germo looked tired the last time I saw
1: him. Oh, he's been sleeping regular.
6: Yeah, I know. But all this is wearing him out just the same he's getting pretty spooky.
1: Well, I should think he would, with what he's got on his conscience.
6: I better ask Sartank if he knows another Kiowa who could spell him for a while. I think he's got a cousin around here somewhere.
1: Oh, it makes my bones ache just to think about him not sleeping tall. Marshal, uh, I uh, I got something to tell you.
6: Huh? Who are you? Well, my name is Verd, but I'm nobody, Marshal. Just a cowboy. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a cowboy, Bert. Sometimes there is. Like yesterday. Oh, what's the trouble? I, I found a dead man, Marshal, out on the prairie. How'd he die? Well, looks to me like he got shot. That's why I come to you. Did you bury him? No. No, I, I wrapped a blanket around him, though. Yeah. Where is he, Bert? Not far from here. Maybe... 15 miles? Yeah. Chester. Yes, sir? Get our horses. We'll ride out and have a look.
0: Yeah, he's
6: still
1: there, Marshal. Nothing's been eaten on him. He sure got himself hid out here. It's a wonder anybody ever found him. Uh, Verd, you, uh,
6: you, you want to take the blanket off of him?
1: Sure.
14: There.
6: Yeah. Um, uh, how did you know he'd been shot? Well, his arm, it's all swole up, Marshal. And then, you see here, I noticed that bullet hole in his sleeve there? Yeah. Well, looks like you've made yourself a thousand dollars, Verdon. What? Wells Fargo offered it for this man, dead or alive. He robbed a stage a few days back. He did? Well, ain't I in luck. And there's another thousand for whoever finds the money he stole.
1: It's probably buried around here somewhere, don't you think, Mr. Dillon? Hey, that reminds me. I noticed uh, something funny over there in them anthills. Like the ground being dug up? Show us, Fred.
6: Yeah. Sure, Marshal. Right over here, Ways.
8: There.
1: See it? Right there? Right by that big one? Yeah. Well, I declare. Huh. By golly, I think he's right, Mr. Dillon.
6: Yeah, uh, something's been buried here, all right. Yeah. I think I can...
1: Yeah, there there it is. There, I got it.
6: Looky there, Marshal, it's it's a money bag. And I found it, didn't I? Yes, sir. That's right, Bird. Here, look at that. It's real money, all right. Marshal... I found it, so I, I, I get the reward. When I... I knew where it was. Yeah, you sure did, Burton. <laughs> we dug up the rest of the money and then made the hole into a grave. And we buried the dead man right there. On the way back to Dodge, I told Verd he could talk all he wanted about finding the bandit's body and the reward he'd collect for it, but that he wasn't to say a word about the money we'd recovered. He couldn't understand why, and I didn't explain it to him, but I warned him he'd never get a penny of either reward if he didn't do as I said. Back in town, I didn't let him out of my sight for the next two days. I figured it'd make Germo pretty worried, and it sure did.
1: <laughs> you know it, it's mighty good to, to get off of that prairie oh. just for change. you oh. mm, think it would be. You don't come to town much, do you? I never seen you around here before. Well, I, I've been too broke, Chester. Well, sir, it sure takes money to see the elephant in Dodge nowadays. <laughs> I'll
6: be able to afford it soon enough, ain't that right, Marshal? Ah, it looks that way, Verd.
1: Yeah, you've been mighty lucky. <laughs> so far.
6: What do you mean, so far?
1: Nothing, nothing.
16: Evening,
6: Marshal. Ah, hello, Germal. Uh,
16: this the fellow who found your bandit for you? Yeah,
6: I was just telling him how lucky he is. Yeah. Yeah, all that reward money. thousand dollars, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Is that all you're getting, mister? What do, you, what do you mean, is that all? Well, there was more reward than that offered. Oh, you mean the stolen money. Oh, it's too bad about that, wasn't it, Bert? We, we didn't we didn't find no stolen money. You didn't? Oh, but looked everywhere. There'd been some digging nearby, but uh, <laughs> there was nothing in the hole. Well. well, now, what do you make of that? <laughs> Just plain disappeared, eh? Huh? Yeah, yeah, looks that way. Well, that's sure too bad, ain't it? But you can't have all the money in the world, mister. I ain't got all the money in the world. I'll see you later. Marshal, I, I, I did like you told me. I, I, I didn't say nothing. You did fine, Ferd. Just Just fine. <laughs> we left the saloon a little later, I noticed Germo standing in the darkness of the alley, waiting. I was pretty sure he'd follow us as we crossed the plaza and walk up Front Street. When we reached Kelly's stable, Verd wanted to go in and see if his horse had been fed, so we said goodnight and left him there. Chester and I walked on a little ways, then we turned off the street. We went back the stable from the rear inside we could hear voices and we sneaked up from stall to stall until we were close enough to make them out
16: tell me where the money is bird what did you do with it I told you
6: Jermo. the marshals got it we dug it up you're lying now, who turned in $2,000 to collect $1,000? You've stole it and hid it somewhere No, there? I didn't. I tell you. The marshal you. himself said there'd been some digging nearby. What'd you do with it, Bert? Now, tell me before I kill you. No, no. Listen a minute, Guillermo. Look, when you didn't come back, I figured you got caught. And then Charlie died and... I got scared. Yeah, you liked. always was a coward. That's why we left you in the bushes with a rifle when we stopped the stage. No, that don't matter. But look, Jeremy, don't you see this way? We're both safe. Because I'll, I'll split both the rewards with you. You know I will. You're lying. And I'm going to kill you for it. No, now don't. Jeremy. Hold it. Tomo. Tomo. Uh, uh, you're next, Marshal. You should have had your shotgun, Germo. I should have killed you with the hold it. That was my big mistake. No. If you'd have trusted Verge, you both could have got by with us. He was telling me the truth? He was. And you'd have never been convicted on what evidence I had.
13: Well...
8: I guess every man's entitled to, to make a few mistakes. Marshal.
6: Germa. Well, you won't make any more.
16: Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, John Daner, and Lawrence Dobkin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in. Gun smoke. This Monday night, Frank Lovejoy stars on CBS Radio's Suspense. Remember, Monday night, Frank Lovejoy in On the Country Road, presented by Radio's outstanding Theater of Thrills Suspense over most of these same stations. George Walsh speaking. For Mystery Mixed with Merriment, join Mr. and Mrs. North Tuesday evenings on the CBS
0: Radio Network. Well, was I right? Did you see that one coming? That was quite a twist. I I didn't pick it up until after it had been happening for quite a while. Anyway, that was Gunsmoke from 1954, January the 2nd. The name of that one was Stage Holdup. And as always, we will have another episode of Gunsmoke next time we get together. All right. Well, I think we have time for one more song that fits the category of those requested by Mrs. Ethel Flange up there in Bowbells, North Dakota. That we play songs that have to do with unrequited love, love triangles, and hangings. (laughs) Well... This last song was largely a brainchild of Nashville legend Danny Dill, a songwriter who was attempting to write a folk song that would last for the ages. His inspiration for this song, at least in part, was a newspaper story about a priest in New Jersey who was killed under a streetlight while witnesses across the street watched. Apparently, Dill played around with the concept and then borrowed from a Hollywood legend that centered on the famous Lady in Black who, each year following the death of the famous silent film star Rudolph Valentino, delivered a single rose to his grave, anonymously. Well, Dill collaborated with fellow songwriter Mary John Wilkin, and they developed a story that transcended all of its disparate sources. This song tells of a man who was killed in front of witnesses beneath a light on the front of the town hall. Witnesses identified a man fleeing the scene who apparently looks like the song's narrator, the singer of the song. When a judge asks the accused if he has an alibi for the time of the crime, none is offered. The reason? Well, we find out that it's because he had been sleeping with his best friend's wife. The story then takes us to the scene of the hanging, as his secret lover watches without apparent emotion. It's only later that we learn that she does pay tribute to her lover, as she repeatedly returns to his grave in a long black veil. But nobody knows. Nobody knows except the singer who is lying beneath her in his grave. Ten
13: years ago, on a cold, dark night, There was someone killed neath the town hall light. There were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me. The judge said, son, what is your by If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it meant my life. For I had been in the arms of my best friend's wife. She walks these hills In a long black veil She visits my grave When the night winds wail. Well. Nobody knows Nobody sees Nobody knows But The sky falls high and eternity near She stood in the crowd and shed not a tear But sometimes at night when the cold wind moans In a long black veil she cries for my bones she walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds well. Nobody knows. Nobody sees. Nobody knows.
0: Lefty Frizzell. And that was a big hit back in 1959. And that song has been sung very effectively by a number of different singers. Uh, First and foremost, perhaps might be Johnny Cash, but it's also been done by, oh, just a number, just a number of uh, people. And it is a very, very moving tune. Well, we're out of time. So it's time for us to pick up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't fret, though. We'll be back in two weeks and we'll do it all over again. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by and I'm so glad you met me.
15: All lights There were few At the scene But they all Agreed that the Slayer who ran Looked a lot Like me She, she walks, walks These
13: hills In a long Black veil. She visits My grave the night night. When the night
15: Nobody sees nobody knows but me. The judge said, son, what is your